Well, we've been looking at 1 Peter. Uh, one thing that Peter brings to our attention is that Christians should not think that the world admires them or even condones them. The people of God have been warned since the days of Jesus that they would suffer persecution, whether it be soft or harsh persecution. Jesus himself told the church, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John reiterates this in 1 John 3.13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Paul exhorts Timothy to teach the church at Ephesus. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in this epistle, Peter reminds us, chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And then he says in chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. It's about that glory that is to be revealed that I wish to speak to you this morning. That glory is to be revealed as the capstone of our salvation, that is, ours in Christ. And that salvation should be for us a source of great joy. I fear sometimes it's not. Because it's this world that gives us joy. God calls us to love Him above all things. As Christians, the Lord is to have first place in our hearts. To live a godly life is not just how we live, but how we live as Christ is sanctified in our hearts. When Christ is sanctified in our hearts, we follow Him. And when we follow Him, we meet with various trials and tribulations. This is precisely why we must fix our attention on Jesus and the salvation that He gives us. As we keep our hearts fixed on the glory of salvation and our future inheritance, we are able to face the trials of the Christian life. As the writer of Hebrews exhorts us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Consider, therefore, the salvation which Peter speaks. Consider it promised, procured, and applied. Before we think of that, let's ask the Lord to bless our, our time. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to know your ways. We ask that you would teach us your paths. We ask that you lead us into your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. It's for you that we wait all the day long. And we ask you these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. First of all, then, salvation promised. Notice in First Timothy or in First Peter that it is promised in two ways. 
it is promised, first of all, in eternity, and then it is promised beforehand in the Scripture. So notice what Peter says. He writes in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It was promised to us in eternity and notice that it is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in and by the sanctification of the whole or by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit and for the purpose of or for the result it might be of obedience to Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that it is the spirit of Christ uh, who prophesies that this grace is about us, or it's for us, I want you to notice it's a work of the triune God. Yes. And as you read the Scripture, give attention to the many times we, you, that you read uh, in the various way that God reveals Himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not one thing that comes to us as creatures comes to us apart from the working of the triune God. All the works of God are the works of the triune God. They're not, they're, it's, not, it's one God working through, through the different persons. The Father, the Father is the one who begets the Son. Uh, the Son is begotten. The Spirit is, uh, is spirited or sent from the Father and the Son. And all the works of God are the works of the triune God. Uh, regarding salvation, notice that it was promised long ago in eternity between the, the God, in, in, between the persons of the Godhead or among the persons of the Godhead. Chapter 1, verse 18 of 1 Peter, we read, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Notice this. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. And then it, you'll see the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, where, uh, where Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed of him or the Lord, uh, but to share in the suffering uh, for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us before the ages began. So before time began... Before there was anything, God gave us grace in Jesus Christ. And now it's been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. So you have the uh, eternity past, or before the foundation of the world, or before the ages began, and then you have a manifestation of it in history. Again, in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Paul writes, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, underline that, eternal life, which God, the Godhead, who never lies, promised before the ages began. 
and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So you have this, this planning, this purpose, this, this promise of God before time begins. Now, that is known in Reformed circles as the covenant of redemption. Now, that's not a very popular doctrine uh, today. Um, however, it does reflect Reformed orthodoxy up until about the 18th or early 19th century when it either fell out of favor or it was ignored until it was lost. And so you don't hear much about it today. However, I want you to notice that the idea is a biblical one. By whatever name one uses, the truth is obvious, is it not? We have been saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God has saved us and called us because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us before the ages began. Well, what can that mean except that, that God gave us to His Son before creation? And whether you call that the covenant of redemption or something else is of secondary importance. What is important is what the Scripture teaches. Our salvation was promised in eternity. It was promised before time began. But not only that, it was promised also in the Scripture. So Peter says in chapter 1 verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Those two words are emphatic in the Greek text. They have... It's odd the way that you can build words in, 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 in the Greek. You can, build, you, can add, you can add prepositions to verbs and, and you can then u- use those to emphasize what you're trying to say. And so those two words are they, they really searched, they, they inquired, and that's why they put it there carefully. That's, they're trying to express to us in translation that, that the prophets really dug into this thing to try to understand it because they really didn't grasp it. They caught, it isn't that they didn't understand anything, it's that they just didn't, they couldn't put it all together. They were looking, as, it, as we look into things right now through a glass dimly, well, what do you think they were looking through? The same kind of thing. And so... They predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, but did they really understand them fully? And the answer is no. Brian Estelle makes this comment in the book of Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy, The Gospel According to Jonah. He makes this statement, and it's appropriate for this passage. And I quote, The prophets searched, angels longed to see, and the disciples didn't understand. But Moses, the prophets, and all the Old Testament scriptures had spoken about it. That Jesus would come, suffer, then be glorified. God began to tell a story in the Old Testament, the ending of which the audience eagerly anticipated. But the Old Testament audience was left hanging. Kind of like a cliffhanger, right? The plot was laid out, but the climax was delayed. The unfinished story begged an ending. In Christ, God had provided the climax to the Old Testament story. 
Jesus did not arrive unannounced. His coming was declared in advance in the Old Testament, not just in explicit prophecies of the Messiah, but by means of the stories of all of the events, characters, and circumstances in the Old Testament. God was telling a larger, overreaching, unified story from the account of creation in Genesis to the final stories of the return from exile, God progressively unfolded His plan of salvation and the Old Testament account of that plan always pointed in some way to Christ. End quote. Amen. Well, that's what Peter's getting to. Now I want you to think about this. Um, think about some things that we have studied, right? We went through the book of Isaiah and uh, we saw those prophecies and, and then we came to Isaiah 53 and we, we saw how Isaiah clearly prophesied about Christ. But did Isaiah understand what he was predicting? And the answer is no, not fully. He understood some. He understood about someone having to give their lives, but did he understand it all? No, he didn't. He was, he was trying to understand. He was doing what Peter says that he was doing. He was searching and carefully inquiring into these things. Um, he knew not the person he referred to when he described the one who would, be, who would suffer for the sins of his people. And it isn't until we come to the fullness in Christ that it is brought to our attention. Now I want you to notice, turn back to Acts chapter 8. You'll see this clearly. Acts chapter 8, <clears throat> when Philip uh, runs into the um, Ethiopian eunuch. Kind of get a glimpse of what Isaiah was, what Isaiah might have struggled with and uh, the New Testament's response to that. Acts chapter 8. I'll get there in a second. My fingers are flimsy here. Now you recall uh, all these things happening just after the stoning of Stephen. Uh, you read in the first part where the, the Apostle Paul was there giving approval, uh, letting the young men lay their coats at his feet as they stoned uh, young Stephen. Um, and then they go down to Samaria. And it's in that context of the, of the gospel going out, out from Jerusalem and in chapter 8, verse 26, we read about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. In verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit of, said to Philip, go over and join, the, join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that, was, that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask, does the prophet say this about himself? 
or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, underline with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Beginning from that scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Beloved, the gospel is not new. It has been fulfilled in Christ. And Philip makes that so clear as he speaks to that Ethiopian eunuch. Consider also the fact that we've been studying the book of Jeremiah, right? On Wednesday night, we just finished it. And uh, that's where the Lord talks about the covenant. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Well, the New Testament gives us insight into that as the writer of Hebrew ex- Hebrews explains this new, co- uh, this new covenant. Uh, in uh, chapter 12, verse 18, which is only one of the places, but the writer says, For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned, was the order. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you... You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Beloved, the gospel is not new. The the gospel is what the Bible is all about. It's fulfilled in Christ, but the Bible is Christocentric. Every, Every story... Once, in one way or another, leads us to Christ, points us to Christ. And the gospel, the gospel is, the, Christ should be clothed in the gospels that we have, the four, in the four gospels. When you think of him, don't think of him as a doctrine. Think of him as the person that he is. Uh, think of him as the one, as the, as, as the Son of God who took, took on human flesh to die for our sins that we might live with Him in eternity and an eternal inheritance that is ours because of what He has gotten for us. So the writer of Hebrews says, don't refuse Him. See to it that you don't refuse Him because you will not escape. You know, I've struggled since my son's death. And I sense that I have not been faithful to anyone in my preaching, not as I should be. I don't believe I was faithful enough to him either because I didn't warn him enough. I didn't tell him enough that he might face eternal hell if he refused Christ. We do not like to hear about hell 
it, it's really not a popular subject. And it's fallen on deaf ears today, and especially it's fallen in disfavor. But I must warn you, young and old, listen to me. Listen to the Word of God. Do not refuse Him who is speaking. If people perished in the Old Testament because they didn't listen to God, do you think that you will get off easier? Beloved, I have to tell you, hell is real. Okay? We don't like to hear that. People don't like to hear about hell. They don't like to hear that it's real. They want to hear the good... Tell me the good news about Jesus. Tell tell me how much God loves me. Tell, Tell me... Make me feel good. Well, the Gospel does make you feel good, but I have to make you feel bad if you're not going to pay attention. And that is, hell is real. Francis Schaeffer, that was one of the things that he said almost all the time that I remember when I was listening to his tapes and stuff, is that hell is real. It's real, and we have to get that down. People have to understand that. I want to warn you, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth. Do you believe that? You see, because you're going to bow the knee to Christ whether you want to or not. You either bow it to Him now because you worship Him, or you'll bow your knee to them to Him then because you are facing His judgment and His wrath. Well, that's another thing we don't like to hear about is wrath. We don't like the wrath of God and we don't like hell. Well, I have to lay it out before you. It's real. They're both real. And you will face them if you either for real or you'll, you'll, you'll understand them as they're related in Christ. So the gospel's been proclaimed to us from eternity. But now it's also been procured for us. And that's the second note I bring to your attention. Peter tells us that Christ procured our salvation. He says in verses 1, 19, and 20 that we were ransomed from our feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb, Uh, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. And because of this, he exhorts us to prepare our minds for action. He writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Christ procured our salvation. But I want you to notice that he talks about the revelation of Christ in the end. He's talking about the second coming, or what we might call the the second appearing of our Lord Jesus. Do you know the, the Bible talks about the three appearings of Christ? The book of Hebrews talks about the three appearings of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, we read um, that he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And in 9 verse 11 we read, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent that is the one made, uh, that is made without hands, he entered, into the, he entered into the Holy of Holies through His flesh. That was His first appearing. His second appearing 
is when he appears now before the throne of God. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ has entered into, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What is he doing now on our behalf? Well, he's praying for us. He's interceding for us. Um, We talk about praying for one another. And we always say, yeah, I'll pray for you. And sometimes it's just kind of a shallow, I need to get going. <laughs> That's really, you know, we can say goodbye to one another real quick if we say, well, yeah, I'll pray for you. And then we forget about it. And that's true for me. I believe it's true for all of us that we say, well, I'm going to pray. And then we don't. Now, some of us do. And I know that some people pray all the time. And it isn't that, I never, that we never pray for the things that people say, but we're not as intent on it as we we ought to be. But think of this. Christ, our Lord, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and He has God's ear, right? Yes. I mean, that's what He has. It's like, uh, remember when um, when um, was Bathsheba entered into the throne room of David when they were going to yes. make a Solomon king? Well, she had His... She had his audience. I mean, she had his attention right there. Esther, when she went into the king, she had she had his ear when she went in there, you know, and interceded for people. Well, Christ, uh, Christ is seated. He doesn't have to enter enter there. He already has entered. He's seated at the right hand of the power of God, and he has God's ear. And what does he do? He intercedes for us. And we might ask, but why? You know, why is that? Why is that so important? Well. Because you need somebody to intercede for you. Amen. You, no, no offense, guys. I'm, I'm weak. I mean, I really am weak. And I think probably most of you are weak like me. Now, some of you may not be, but, but the point is I'm a weak person. I struggle with sin. Do you? Okay, well, Christ intercedes for us as, as, as we struggle with this. As we bring our petitions before the throne of God, we, we have the ear of God because Christ is there. So when we're struggling with, with some temptation, uh, the only thing that we can do is cry out, Lord, help me. You know, Lord, Lord, help me get over this temptation. Help me to fight this temptation. There are temptations for all kinds of things. Lust, anger, bitterness. I'm always catching myself saying something that I shouldn't, you know. And having to go to a person and say, you know, I shouldn't have said that, it was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Well, you know, who the, the, the Son of God is actually helping me with this. He's actually working in me that I might progress in my sanctification. That's what He's doing right now. He's appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. But then finally, He's going to appear at the last. His final appearing is when he comes again the second time. And the writer of Hebrews in verse chapter 9, verse 28 says that, So Christ, having been offered once to bear sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He is going to save us from the wrath to come. Again, we don't like... We don't like the word wrath. We don't like wrath. We don't like that idea. But it's a, we're warned about that. But we're delivered from that. Um, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians and he, and he commends them, he says, For they themselves report concerning us 
uh, the kind of reception we had among you, the Thessalonians, and how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the wrath, the wrath of God is coming. It's not here right now. God may be judging the church right now. I, you know, the church is really, the church has not done um, a very good job in the West, and we're our popularity is waning. Uh, you know, we have not done what we should have done in terms of standing against abortion, though some people are doing that more so now. Uh, we haven't done, we haven't, we haven't, we really haven't worked. I mean, some congregations have. I believe our congregation has. But for the, by and large, there, it isn't until this all comes out, and I don't agree with the Black Lives Matter movement, but I do agree that Black Lives Matter, and it's not until all that came out, until everything got really bad, that churches began to say, like the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, we need to repent of the prejudices that we've had over the years. You know, it's sad to hear that it was 1960 was the last time that a young black man was lynched. 1960, come on. I was I was going to I was going to junior high school in 1960. I never heard about I never heard about that. And that's not the only racial prejudice that the church has struggled with. What about Mexican Americans? You know, when I in, when I was in high school at North High School, half the school was Mexican, half the school was white. We always seemed to get along. But West High School that was different. At West High School, the teachers used to put. Mexican children down, make fun of them in class, call them names in class, in front of everybody until in the mid-60s, around 1966, they got up out of school and they walked out of the school building and they protested about the way that teachers were treating them. And it wasn't until they did that that they got somebody's attention. And that's when the Chicano movement began uh, to gain force in Denver, Colorado. Well, the reason all that happened was because you had people who were in positions of authority treating people who were of uh, a different ethnic uh, background differently, treating them like trash, and they shouldn't have been doing that, and it was happening in the churches too. And now what are we doing? Well, we have woke pastors... In this city, we have woke pastors who are part of conservative denominations. And what, they're, all they're doing is capitulating to the culture. Well, the only, the only answer for racial prejudice is not going woke and following all this crazy nonsense. The real answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because as hearts are changed, people are changed. Amen. And Jesus, the gospel says, listen, there is no Jew, Gentile, Greek, slave, bond, whatever. It doesn't matter what you are. That is not what you are. You are a Christian. And it doesn't matter what your skin color is or anything like that. What matters is that you are in Christ. Amen. We are one in Christ and that's what needs to be sounded because the wrath of God is coming and it may come on those who sometimes claim to be Christians. Paul tells us in Romans 5, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Because we have been saved by His life, we, are, we escape the wrath of God to come. We shall be saved from the wrath of God because of Jesus Christ and His work in our lives. So Jesus procured it. So it was promised to us, it was procured for us, and it's also been plied to us. Plied. The word plied isn't used much today. It's kind of an old form, but um, really it's just what the word applied means. Um, I can say something like, I apply the scripture to you, but I really can't do that. I can't apply the gospel to you, but the, the Spirit of God can apply it to you. And a briefer way to say that is that the Spirit applied it to you. Um, he's the one that applies it to you. He's the one that applies the Word of God to you. Peter writes, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Now notice that he says it's the living and abiding Word of God. The Word of God is not dead. It's not a, just a, it's not just words on a page. This right here, you know, you could you could take this and tear it up and throw it away, but it w- wouldn't change it at all. It's the word of God. It's living. So I could pick up another one, and it would be living too. <laughs> How is that? Why is that? Well, because it's living. Because the Spirit of God makes it alive. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, the rest that only God can give us, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God, now I want you to listen to this carefully, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The Word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of my heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight. Now now we're switching pronouns. First the Word of God, and then it's the Word of God who examines our hearts, but now it's the Word of God, and we're not hid from His sight. Whose sight? All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him in whom we must, to whom we must give an account. How, how does that work? Well, it's the Holy Spirit who makes that work. It's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God that makes it alive. That's why some people, when they read, doesn't mean anything to them. Um, You know, like in the movie, I saw the guy was tearing off pages of the New Testament. Or no, it was actually um, not a movie. It was a missionary report I heard. This man had been caught, and he went through the um, that march in World War II, the Baton March, and. he said there was a man in his in in the camp that had a New Testament, and he was tearing the pages out and rolling them up. He'd find cigarettes, you know, on the ground, and he'd take the paper from the New Testament out, and he'd roll up cigarettes and smoke it. So this this missionary guy said, "Listen, before you tear out a page, can I have it? And I'll read it and study it. I'll give it back to you, and then you can make your cigarette." So that's what he did during in this camp. He would get the page before the guy put tobacco in it, he roll it up. 
and uh, before he would smoke it. And this guy would get in a, go to a place by himself, you know, where the guards couldn't see him, until he got caught anyway. And he would read the scripture, and he found a little pencil, and he would make notes and everything on paper that he could find, and then he would pray and all that. And that all carried on until he got caught, and then the guy kicked him, the guard kicked him until he was unconscious, and he woke up in, in bed. But that's how he lived through that camp. And um, it was the word of God working in him because he said when he left Bataan, he was he hated the Japanese with all the hatred that you could have. But you know, God transformed that man, and he went back to Japan as a missionary. <laughs> it was an amazing story, you know. But it, you know, how did that happen to him? How did the word of God become so effective in him? Well, it's because the Spirit of God made it alive. It wasn't just a dead word. Sure, you could take it and roll it up and smoke it and use it as a cigarette, but for a person in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, it's not just a dead word on the page. It's it's the living Word of God. And, um, And that's how he saw it, and that's how the Spirit of God worked in his heart to the place where he didn't hate the Japanese anymore. He actually loved them and went back to serve them. Um in his older life. As the Holy Spirit applies the Word of God to us, and we need to heed that Word, the Gospel is about free grace, but grace is not cheap grace. Grace teaches us, Paul reminds us that grace teaches us that denying ungodliness, we're to live soberly and righteously in this present age. So after teaching us then about the grace of the gospel, the Apostle Peter teaches us to be obedient. As obedient children. See, now the the Spirit of God applies this to our hearts. And then that should work obedience in us. If it's not working obedience in us, there's something that's not right. Something's ajar if our lives are not being changed. I don't mean that you're going to change 100% from today to tomorrow. I'm just saying that there has to be growth in the Christian life. And if there's no growth there, then you have to ask yourself, why? If the Spirit of God is really taking the Word of God and applying it in our lives, why is it that that we don't change at all? I'm not saying, you know, like I said, change a little bit. If you go, if you take a half a step forward, that's better than nothing. And yes, you'll probably take two steps back when you take the half step forward, but you're moving ahead. That's the point. So Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God does not want compromisers. Amen. And we, you know, and that's my biggest struggle, uh, that I compromise. But God doesn't want me to compromise. He wants me to be holy. He wants me to walk as Christ walked. And every day, every time I think of that, I'm, I'm, I'm brought low. And I cry out to God, I need you to, I need you to strengthen me because I'm not strong enough to be what you call me to be. Again, he writes, And if you call him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Why is it that we think that Christianity, being a Christian, means that we're supposed to be, you know, uh, jumping for joy every second? Why is it that people are being, why do people buy this bill of goods that says, you have to be happy? If you believe the gospel, you'll be rich. 
You know, if you believe the gospel, you know, everybody's going to love you. If everybody loves you, you probably don't believe the gospel that's in the Scripture. So, when we conduct ourselves with fear, well, what does that mean? Why do they use the word fear if they don't mean... I know you say, well, conduct your life with reverence. Okay, well, whatever, whatever you want to make it mean, it's still fear. In other words, you're thinking, I want to please God. Amen. Knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the precious blood of Jesus saves us from our sins. So then having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I think we do that pretty good. But it's something we always have to work on, isn't it? Yes. Beloved, the gospel has both an indicative and an imperative. I know you know what that means. We've done it, talked about it before. But the indicative always comes first, and it is necessary for the imperative. Therefore, you have been justified, redeemed, and sanctified in Christ. That's the indicative. You are united to Him as your arm is united to your body. Your union with Christ is not a result of anything you have done. God saves you by His grace. Your righteousness is Christ's righteousness. Because you are in Christ, because you have been born again, because you have been justified, redeemed, and sanctified, you are therefore to live soberly and righteously in this present age. And that's the imperative. The indicative is you're in Christ. The imperative is this. Live soberly and righteously. You are to be holy because of the one who has called you is holy. Well then, let us therefore think on these truths. The gospel of our salvation was promised, procured, implied. Let us give our thoughts to that as we go through the day and through the week. And may God be honored in our thoughts, words, and deeds. Let's pray. We praise you, our Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. We seek that, we, that what we do and how we live and the way we love may increasingly become worthy, a worthy response of your graciousness to us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, that's going to end our time for the... Um,